Wow, what a nice crowd. Look at all these people. You're going to have to be impressed. <laughs> I'm Lucy Ferris. People, people don't know who I am anymore because I've been gone all semester, so I have to say that. Um, and in a couple of minutes, uh, first, turn off your cell phones. You know all that. Um, and I guess I don't have to care to... I, this, this is it, right? I don't yes. have to say what the next one is. Okay, great. In a couple of minutes, I have to turn this podium over to my tennis opponent, Amity <laughs> She hits an exquisite forehand and a two-handed backhand with a ton of topspin, and her serve has a kick on it that I'm still getting used to. Oh, I'm sorry. You wanted to hear about her writing. Well, it's pretty much the same. She hits an exquisite forehand and a two-handed backhand with a ton of topspin, and her serve has a kick on it that I'm still getting used to. Which is to say, that what I'd really like to do is to use up this entire hour teaching a master class from a single scene in her latest novel, Schroeder, which came out last year and was shortlisted for the Folio Prize, which is the only major English language fiction prize open to writers from all around the world. So that's one hell of a tournament. And Schroeder is only her third novel, so it kind of boggles the mind to consider where her career might be headed. But in this scene, the one I want to steal the whole hour for, it takes place in a park. In it, the title character, an utterly engaging, completely unreliable narrator, is attempting to charm a social worker into allowing him joint custody of his daughter. At the beginning of the scene, we read of Schroeder's daughter, Meadow, that she, quote, wandered across the old playground making a half-hearted sally across the monkey bars. We hear nothing further about Meadow for four pages, during which our hearts begin to race while Schroeder makes his careful arguments to the social worker about his theories of parenting. I won't tell you what happens to Meadow during that time, but what stuns me as a writer is how Amity trusts her reader. She remains inside <coughs> her narrator's point of view. He has taken his eye completely off his daughter. He's wrapped up in his speech and his cause. So the narrative takes its eye off. It wraps itself up as well. But it knows we're there. We have not forgotten Meadow. And we are waiting. We are on the edge of our seat. We know what this scene will be about, and we know that the author will not disappoint us. Amity, I want to say straight to you, I've read that scene like 50 times. Oh my gosh, thank you. Schroeder has been called enthralling by the Washington Post, a deeply moving tale by The Economist, a remarkable feat by USA Today, poetic, urgent, and concise by The Guardian, a bravura exploration of the physical and psychological limits of identity by the Sunday Times of London. So you see what I mean by the serve having a kick on it. <laughs> Amity Gage is our neighbor living in West Hartford, and she is writer-in-residence at Amherst College. It's a privilege to have her here today. Please join me in welcoming her.
that was pretty much the best introduction I've ever been fortunate to, to be given to me. And um, Lucy, it's, it's, it's amazing to, to, to hear your words on that. And uh, I'm really honored to be here reading with you and with my you know, new friends here at Trinity and in uh, West Hartford. And don't think that's going to make me easier on you on the court, because, you know, just. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely an honor to be here with you. I'm, I'm pleased to be reading from, from Schroeder. Um, I'm just going to read from the beginning um, to keep things easy. Uh, and then I, I, I do, I would love to answer questions. Um, Sometimes the question that I, I get is, is the, one of the most common questions that I think a writer get is, gets is, what's your book about? Um, and, um, and it's funny because I, I ask other writers, what's your book about too? But it's the most difficult question to answer. Um, and part of that is because whatever you say sounds so inadequate and kind of silly. Like, I've been working on that for five years. That's it. Just, wait, what people just mean is, you know, what's, what are the main characters and um, things like that. But it's somehow it's so hard to describe. And you want to be able to describe the full sort of range of the book um, and not reduce it very much. But I, I will attempt in the Q&A to answer um, that question in all the different ways that you can answer that question. I have a friend who puts people off with that question when they ask him what his book is about by saying, despair. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, Schroeder is not about despair, I don't think so. Um, it's about many, many things. Uh, yes, yeah, so this is just the beginning. Um, maybe to tell you, um, you know, uh, Eric Schroeder is, is writing um, uh, basically a letter to his wife, uh, his estranged wife. And you find out pretty early on in the book, maybe a third or halfway through, that he's writing from prison. Um, so a lot of what you're kind of waiting to find out is why he's there. Um, yeah. What follows is a record of where Meadow and I have been since our disappearance. My lawyer says I should tell the whole story, where we went, what we did, who we met, etc. As you know, Laura, I'm not a reticent person. I'm talkative. You could even say chatty for a man. I'm sorry, you could, you could even say chatty for a man, but I haven't spoken a word for days. It's a vow I've taken. My mouth tastes old and damp, like a cave. It turns out I'm not very good at being silent. There are castles of things I want to tell you, which might explain the enthusiasm of this document, despite what you could call its sad story. My lawyer also says that this document could someday help me in court, so it's hard not to think of this as a sort of plea, not just for your mercy, but also for that of a theoretical jury, should we go to trial. And in case the word jury sounds exciting to you, it did to me for a second. I've since learned that a jury gets all kinds of things wrong, cleaving as it does to initial impressions, and in the end rarely offers the ringing exonerations or the punishments that we deserve. It's hard not to think about them anyway, my potential listeners, lawyers, juries, fairy tale mobs, historians, but most of all, you, you, my whip, my nation, my wife. Dear Laura, if it were just the two of us again, sitting together at the kitchen table late at night, I would probably just call this document an apology. Can you hear me okay? Am I, should, I shouldn't, okay. 
Once upon a time, in 1984, I created another fateful document. On the surface, it was an application to a boys' camp on Ossipee Lake in New Hampshire. I was 14 and had been living in the United States for only five years. During those five years, my father and I had occupied the same top floor apartment of a tenement in Dorchester, Massachusetts, which if you've never been there, is a crowded multiracial neighborhood in Boston's southern hinterlands. Even though I'd quieted my accent and cloaked myself in a Bruins hockey shirt and tried to appear as tough and sulky as my Irish-American counterparts who formed Dorchester's racial minority, I was still mentally fresh off the boat and was still discovering on a daily basis the phenomena of my new homeland. I remember the electronic swallowing sound of a quarter by the slot of my first video game machine, as well as the sight of a vibrating electronic toothbrush, and how one day when I was waiting for the bus, a boy not much older than me drove up to the curb in a Corvette convertible and hopped out without use of the door. I remember seeing many sights like this and more because the feelings they brought up were confusing. At first, I'd feel a pop of childish wonder, but this wonder was followed by the urge to stuff it back because if I were a real American, I would not have been in the least impressed with any of it. Self-consciousness was my escort, a certain doubleness of mind that I relied upon to keep myself from asking stupid questions, such as when Dad and I drove across the border of Rhode Island one day on an errand, and I resisted asking why there was no checkpoint between state lines, for I had, if you can believe it, brought my German passport with me. I first saw the brochure for Camp Ossipee in my pediatrician's office. I studied it every time I was sick until I slipped it in my jacket and took it home. I stared at this brochure for weeks, in bed, in the bath, hanging from my pull-up bar, until its pages started to stick together. The American boys in the photographs hung suspended in the air between cliffside and lake water. They walked in threes, portaging canoes. I started to envision myself swimming with them. I imagined myself crawling through the wheat or whatever, learning to track and to mushroom. I would be the go-to man, the boy out in front. Not so much the hero, but an outrider. I was particularly interested in the Ossipian rite of passage, available only to the oldest boys in their final year, a solo overnight camping trip on a remote island in the middle of the lake. And here is where my future self was really born to me in this image. Myself, Eric Schroeder, man alive, stoking a fire in the night, solo, self-sufficient, freed from the restrictions of society. I would fall asleep as one boy, and wake up the next day a totally different one. All I had to do to apply to the camp was to fill out a form and write a personal statement. What sort of statement were they looking for, I wondered. What sort of boy? I sat at my father's card table, gazing out at the window at the corner of Sagamore and Savin Hill Avenue, where two classmates of mine were fighting over a broken hockey stick. I slipped a piece of paper into my father's typewriter. I began to write. Mine was a tale that, by certain lights, was the truest thing I had ever written. It involved the burdens of history, an early loss of the mother, a baseless sense of personal responsibility, and a hope for the future. Of course, by other lights, the lights that everyone else uses, including courts of law, my story was pure canard. A fraudulent, distorted, spurious, crooked, desperate fiction, which, when I met you, I lay bound at your feet. 
But this was 1984. I hadn't met you yet. I wasn't lying to you. I was just a child, sitting at my father's typewriter, my legs trussed to the knee in white athletic socks, my hair still rabbit blonde, not dark at the roots like it is now. I addressed the envelope. I filched a stamp. When it came time to sign the bottom of that crowded page, it was with some flair that I first signed the name by which you came to know me. The surname wasn't hard to choose. I wanted a hero's name. And there was only one man I'd ever heard called a hero in Dorchester, a local boy, a persecuted Irishman, a demigod. He was also a man who'd spoken to cheering throngs of depressed West Berliners circa 1963, leaving them with a shimmering feeling of self-regard that lasted long beyond his assassination. His hero status, still in place when my father and I finally got there much later. In fact, you might say John F. Kennedy is the reason we showed up in this country at all. I spent months intercepting the mail looking for my acceptance letter from Ossipee. The letter would offer me full acceptance to the camp on scholarship as well as sympathies for my troubles. I dreamt of this letter so often that I had a hard time believing it when it actually arrived. We at Ossipee believe that every boy deserves a summertime. We are dedicated to supporting boys from all circumstances. Come join us by the shores of our beloved lake, Ossipee, where good boys become better men. Yes, I thought, I accept. I've got plenty of circumstances. My excitement was tempered only by the sound of dad's key in the downstairs foyer, and I realized I wasn't going to be able to show him the letter itself, which was addressed to a different boy. Instead, I showed him the disintegrated brochure. I told him of the man-to-man -man phone call from the camp director. I even made the scholarship merit-based, rounding out the fantasy for both of us. We trotted around the apartment all evening. It was as close as my father ever got to joyful abandon. No one ever checked my story. When the time came, I took a bus two hours north from Boston to a bus stop called Moultonville, where a camp representative was to greet me and another scholarship boy we picked up in Nashua. When we got off the bus, a stout woman in canvas pants came toward us. This was Ida, the camp cook, and its only female. The other boy mumbled an introduction. Ida looked at me. Then you must be Eric Kennedy. Why did they believe me? God knows. All I can say is it was 1984. You could apply for a social security number through the mail. There were no databases. You had to be rich to get a credit card. You kept your will in a safety deposit box and your money in a big wad. There were no technologies for omniscience. Nobody wanted them. You were whoever you said you were and I was Eric Kennedy. For the next three summers, that's who I was. Steady-handed Eric Kennedy, and Eric Kennedy, Iron Forge Eric Kennedy, Eric Kennedy of the surprisingly tuneful singing voice. My transformation was amazing. The first summer I spoke in a quavering voice that only I knew was meant to prevent any trace of an accent. I harbored a fear that some real German would come up to me and ask me, wo geht zum Bahnhof and I would answer. But this never happened. And besides, nobody distrusted me or scrutinized me or seemed to wish me harm. At Ossipee, the boys were taught that trusting other people was something you did for yourself, for your own ennoblement. And this old-fashioned lesson, however perversely I received it, is a debt I still hold to the place. Over time, I left the periphery of the group and moved toward the center of things. 
I took off my shirt and joined in the dances around the campfire. I led the chanting for food in the dining hall. By the end of my first summer, they couldn't shut me up. After that, I never really stopped talking. The time eventually came for my solo camping trip. It was my third and final summer at Ossipee, a strikingly clement one. A steady wind swabbed at the surface of the lake, forming darkly iridescent wavelets that tapped the bottom of the Camp Chriscraft. All the boys I'd lionized in previous summers were gone. The younger arrivals, their hair still bearing the ruts of combing, hung around the dock watching me set off, and I realized that I had become the older boy, the one they'd remember once I was gone. The boathouse counselor motored me toward distant coordinates and left me there on a hard beach, wearing a crown of gnats. The night was endless, but that's not the point of my story. The point I want to tell you about is in the morning, how when I heard the sound of the crisscraft approaching through the fog, I zipped out of my nylon tent as if from a skin, and I knew that I had achieved something truly monumental. I had chosen my own childhood. I had found a past that matched my present. And so, with the help of enthusiastic recommendations from the folks at Ossipee, as well as a series of forgeries I hesitate to deal detail here, despite the fact that Xeroxes of them have been pushed across tables at me quite recently, I was accepted as Eric Kennedy to Mune College in Troy, New York. I was a work-study student at Mune, operating the toll booth at a multi-story parking garage, and the rest of my tuition was furnished via Pell Grant, which I paid back, by the way. I majored in communications. I was a B student. Smart in class, you know, but inconsistent when actual work on my own was required. My secret bilingualism led me to excel in the study of other languages, Spanish, even conversational Japanese. When I graduated, I got a job nearby as a medical translator at Albany's Center for Medical Research, and there I stayed for six uneventful years, free as a bird. Of course, birds aren't free. Birds do almost nothing freely. Birds are some of nature's most industrious creatures, spending every available hour searching and hoarding and avoiding competitive disadvantage, busy just having to be birds. Like a bird, I did not think of it as work. I thought of it as being. Like a bird, I was constantly at work being Eric Kennedy. And like a bird, I did not think of it as work. I thought of it as being. The earliest and cruelest deceptions had already happened, meaning my deceptions of my father. Whenever I was Eric Kennedy, I'd made myself hard for dad to contact. Even at Ossipee, I told him there were no telephones in the wilderness of New Hampshire, but if he wanted me to call him, I would set out on foot to the nearest town, and of course he said, nine, nine, Eric. Then in measured English, I will see you when I see you. Right. He would see me when he saw me, which was seldom. During college, I was like any other young man, busy trying to appear more interesting than I was. You know, amassing a music collection, composing mental manifestos, once or twice appearing on a piece of student theater. I drove only to Dorchester once, uh, uh, drove down to Dorchester only when necessary. I commenced alone in my black gown and mortarboard and then waited until July to bring Dad up for a campus tour when the place was desolate, except for the students at an adult tennis camp. I had befriended a childless professor during my time at Mune, and it was this man, not my father, who co-signed the lease on my first apartment, a sunny one-bedroom kitty corner from Washington Park. I was happy in Albany and rarely left it. 
I liked its protected horizons, its belligerent small-time politicians, and there was always a girl, some girl or another, and laughing and making fun of tourists in the South Mall. These relationships were easy and promise-free. I had a talent for choosing, choosing women who were already predisposed toward happiness and therefore couldn't use me as a catch-all for their disappointments. In my free time, I worked erratically on my research, see page 15, and played soccer with a bunch of foreign on, transplants on a hill we borrowed from the College of St. Rose. And the thing after that, I supposed, would be the thing after that. I did not know the thing after that would be you. You, the first time I saw you, Laura, you were strapping a splint onto a child who'd just fallen out of a tree. About a dozen other children were standing in a loose circle watching you. By then, the boy was screaming so loud that no one but you could get near him. It was my lunch hour, and the noise annoyed me, so I stood to leave. But my gaze caught on you, and I paused. And here there's a footnote, footnote one. I'm going to read it. What is a pause? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> For the purpose of this document, I will restrict my answer to conversational interaction only, in which a pause is a cessation of speech between two or more participants, not, for example, a moment of counterargument during one's solitary existential inner monologue in the bathtub. Compared to a silence, a pause is briefer, a kind of baby silence, the sort of hesitation that occurs when one is fishing for the proper way to put a thing, for example, or when one is reflecting upon what one just said with a measure of regret or when one is distracted by a second subject or a loud noise but wants to appear thoughtful. Nobody asked me, but I would personally time a pause at two or three seconds in duration. It may be true that pauses are, at least historically, second-rate silences. Whereas silences, those yawning spans of time in which the heart sinks, the mouth dries, the truth dawns, are infinitely more consequential and worthy of study. However, this writer maintains that both pauses and silences may be what the theorist and mother of pausology, Zofia Dudek, calls functionally deficient, in other words, a nothing that is something. Both are worthy of study and attention. What caused the snag? What was it about you or about the moment in which you came to my attention, Laura? Was it the way you continued to wrap the boy's wrist so coolly despite the fact that he was hysterical? It was August, late, hot, rotten summer. I would later learn that you had been charged with leading 20 of Albany's neglected children through the poison ivy since July. You looked in need of a shower, but my attention snagged on you. My mind cleaned you off and put you in a sundress and placed a glass of Chardonnay in your hand and turned your face to mine. So I stood up and walked toward you, offering my help, wondering if the feeling would last wondering if I could string together two or three more moments of this rapturous attention that was commanding me. Who knows why, Laura? Who knows why so-and-so falls in love with you-know-who instead of what's-his-name? Reams of poetry have languished in the guessing. I mean, I'm sorry for you that I chose you, but I guess part of my motivation here with this document is to remind you that it wasn't entirely a waste. Listen, were we compatible? I believe, yes, we were very compatible for a while. Although you made a pretty brittle first impression, you turned into one big marshmallow as soon as you decided I was a decent guy. You couldn't stop yourself. Soon you were bringing me books, loose tea, candied apricots. Your flirtations were sweet, a little fussy. It was as if you'd been sequestered from men your entire life and therefore could only seduce me as if I myself were a young girl. 
How quickly I dropped all other commitments, all friendships, clubs, and interests. I had a sense of loving you as if I were your student, and therefore whatever you did, however obscure or specific, was the right thing. You had such a careful way with the truth. You wanted everything you said to be true on several different levels. It took you a long time to fill out a simple form in a doctor's office, tapping the pen to your lips. Did you exercise daily or weekly? Well, you exercised several days a week, but not daily. I leaned over your shoulder to help you scrutinize whatever bit of inconsequentia was capturing your attention. I was happy to study barcodes and ingredients and all genres of fine print with you, the grocery store, the DMV. In America, the opportunities to be accurate are endless, and nothing escaped your eye. Nothing, of course, except me. Marriage, the clashing of expectations, produces a new chord. We had a small civil ceremony, a honeymoon in Virginia Beach. And after these rituals, there was the renting of the apartment, the rearranging of furniture, and an idleness descended upon us. And we were like any newly married pair, nervously wondering, OK, what next? How should we go forward? For a while, there seemed to be someone missing, someone else, like a leader or a chief an urgently needed third party whose role it was to direct traffic between us, to negotiate conflicting plans or forge compromises, to translate cultural or religious differences, or were we really supposed to go it alone? Us, the bride, you, struggling to outstretch her parochial upbringing, born as she was to slightly ignorant but good-hearted Catholics from Del Mar, New York, and the groom, me, raised in a completely fictional town on Cape Cod, he called Twelve Hills, a stone's throw from Hyannisport, a treasured only child, endowed with a last name that could only be uttered in rapture. For the record, the groom never told the bride that he was related to the Kennedys of presidential fame. This has been reported in the papers, and the groom categorically denies it. No, it was simply the word Kennedy plus the words near Hyannisport, and everyone started rushing to conclusions. The groom will admit that once or twice late at night with his female peers at Mune College, he did not sufficiently debunk the rumor of himself as a second cousin twice removed to the Hyannisport Kennedys, and he does not deny that the name often greased the gears of bureaucracy, making what would otherwise have been dull encounters with bank loan officers, traffic cops, slightly charged, even when he denied any family connection. The bride, however, never seemed interested in the groom as a Kennedy. If the bride was impressed by the name, the day after they met in Washington Park and all the days thereafter, she never talked about it. The bride was a serious and moral woman, not easily impressed. She was also a woman who acquired, by the way, in the period of years in which the groom loved her, an incredible inflationary beauty. And the groom just wants to mention that here and to put it here in words in case either of them forgets it. The truth is she stunned the groom whenever he saw her. I mean, whenever he saw her, just the simple fact of her. Whenever she came into one room for another, in, from another room. For example, stepping out of the kitchenette in Pine Hills with a plate of scrambled eggs. The groom was in love with her. That was no lie. And when he was in love with her, a minute no longer seemed like a means to an hour. Rather, each minute was an end in itself, a stillness with vague circularity, 
a gently suggested territory in which to be alive. This trick that love did with minutes endowed hours and days with a kind of transcendent wishy-washiness that encouraged an utter lack of ambition in the groom and was the closest thing he had ever felt to joy, to relief. And he still wonders what would have happened if they could have kept up with it, if they could have stayed in love like that, if maybe they could have crawled through a wormhole to a, to a place where their love would find permanence. Because in the end, the great warring forces of our existence are not life versus death, the groom has come to believe, but rather love versus time. In the majority, love does not survive time's passage, but sometimes it does. It must, sometimes. Oh, Laura, if I had lived my life as one man, one consolidated man, would I have been able to see what was coming? Would I have guessed that it was all bound to fail and that within five years we would separate? Would I have been able to prevent it? I mean, that night when your face streaked with tears, you asked me to get out, you'd had it with me. You'd felt for years, you'd explain this later, like you were living in a house with tilted floors. We'd gone wrong. Pine Hills, we were in the kitchenette. You were facing away from me, leaning with both hands against the sink basin. We'd been arguing for some time, arguing and washing dishes. Meadow was asleep. She was four by then, old enough to hear raised voices, and so we tried to keep disagreements strictly late night. What were we fighting about? You name it. Your increasingly fervent Catholicism, my laziness, your need for order and structure, my lack of discipline, your martyred reticence, my tendency to talk too much. We had a mouse infestation. I'd caught one of the rodents and without the heart to kill it, had given it to Meadow for a pet. As we argued, I watched this mouse tunnel in the infinite corner of its plastic box. Is this about school? I was saying, fine, I'll be better about school, Laura. I'll get her there on time. And it's a negative on the spontaneous field trips, okay? Effective immediately. I don't love the school, you know all this, hun. The bloody Jesus is hanging all over the place. It's just not my idea of a place for children. You know, sweet childish days as long as 20 are now. You said nothing. But okay, okay, I said. I'll be better. I'll work on my attitude. You know, you told me you were Catholic when we got married, but I didn't think you were serious. Finally, you turned around. I could see you'd been crying. This astonished me. I'd been trying for a joke. Oh, Eric, you said, we are so far apart. My hands were still poised to dry the dish you'd been washing, palms up, a damp cloth draped over one forearm. One thing I'm sure of is that despite the late night arguments, despite our differences, but despite the way the light in our marriage had dimmed, even to my blind eyes, I never thought of leaving you, not once. But there was a gap between how bad I thought things were and how bad you thought things were, and our life fell into that gap. <coughs> we are, I said. Just read one more scene. I had been bullied in Dorchester habitually, the black kids were decent to me on the whole, if only by turning away from my vulnerable stare as if I wasn't even present. But the Irish-American princes who looked like me and lived like me in sagging three-story tenements were looking for a fall guy. 
They tricked me, shoved me, and suckered me, while never being so cruel that I could easily recognize any one of them as my enemy. They made fun of my German accent long after I could have sworn I no longer had one. On one occasion, a boy no bigger or stronger than me confronted me in a drainage ditch we used as a shortcut home from school. I had never considered this boy an enemy. In fact, we often compared homework on the school steps in the morning, and so I was surprised when he put up his fists and began hopping from one foot to the other. Come on, Schroeder, he said anxiously. I was confused. Come on and what? Come on and fight. Fight. Why? Because, that's why. I could have fought him. I probably would have won. I knew that a victory would bring some relief from the teasing and unchecked xenophobia that surrounded me every day. But I didn't fight him. I had been taught only to escape. I spied a swinging gate in someone's chain link fence, and I ran through it and slammed the gate back toward my pursuer. I ran. I ran for a long, long time. I ran in a hysterical pattern that was random enough to lose anybody sane. Later that evening, against my will, I began to cry in front of my father. I was ashamed. I told my father what had happened, that a boy had tried to fight me, but it, that I had not stood and fought him, but instead I ran away. My father put down his fork and looked thoughtful. I stared at his beard, cranberry red at its thickest, and hoped that whatever he would say would relieve me. He was a man of very few words, and the longer we lived in Boston, the fewer of them there seemed to be. After a moment, he picked up his fork. Of course you did not fight, Eric, he said. It is not natural to stand and fight. The truth is, it is natural to run. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, someone want to ask me what the book is about? <laughs> I can tell you a little bit more of what happens. He, uh, you know, Eric and is, loves his daughter Meadow, and um, when she, they get, they eventually do get divorced, of course, as he mentions, and uh, he kind of loses custody of her. So one day on a parental visitation, he kind of is like, do you want to go for a road trip, which he's not supposed to do. And then they do, and they go for a road trip, which, of course, is not legal. <laughs> or advisable, and um, you know, he's he tells the story of what happens, what they do. Um, so yes, what would you like to talk about? Some of you are, for, for your faces are familiar from from the class um, that I visited the other night. I don't know if I got to visit, if I got to answer those questions or not.